Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. Uh, John, we're continuing, actually concluding our series yeah. today, Celebrating the Word. Yeah. And you're going to be talking about an interesting subject, and, and I don't know if people explain it the way you do or, or, or emphasize the way you do, but we're talking about the, the 66 books, in essence, and no more. So what are you going to be saying about Yeah, that? because I'm going to say that those 66 books are the sum total of God's words to us. And there is no other book and there are no other books to be added to the one that we have received. And we're gonna talk about why we believe that. Excellent, excellent. Well, we look forward to that, John, and return with us in just a minute for more from Dr. John Newfeld. I've been talking about why the Bible is unique and why we call the Bible the Word of God. But today I wanna to address something that you may or may not have thought about, and, and it's this question. You know, the Bible that we have has 66 separate writings. It's called uh, books of the Bible. And uh, we don't have 67 or 69 or, or 25 for that matter. We have exactly 66. And furthermore, uh, you're probably aware of the fact that there are other so-called holy books. And some of them and some religions of the world will say, we actually accept the Bible as the word of God, but we also add our revelation as well. And what's unique about Christians is that most Christians will say the Bible alone uniquely is the word of God. So we tend to be exclusivists rather than inclusivists. And to many of us, that's a problem. Here's why. In the culture in which we live, uh, inclusivism, to include others, you know, is considered a great virtue. I mean, think about those days in which we used to exclude women or, or minorities or some other group of people from whatever gathering we might have. Exclusive sounds exclusive and it sounds negative to most of us. And yet when we say these 66 books are exclusively the word of God, you know, some of us just react to that. So let's talk about that for just a brief moment. You know, sometimes when we use the word exclusive, it's not a negative word at all. It's an overwhelmingly positive word. And, and I've got some examples here. For instance, let's say that you develop a patent on a product or a medicine or something of that nature. Uh, that patent will say that only you exclusively can develop that. In the culture in which we live, we say that's a good thing. Because if we didn't allow people exclusive rights to a patent, it would take away all the incentive to developing a new product and all the creativity and, and all the energy and all the finances that's required to do that. If everybody had inclusive rights to that, well, people just wouldn't do what they do. And so a great many inventions that bless our lives would not have happened were it not for patents which speak about exclusivity. You see, in some contents, exclusive is a very good word. Give you another example. When we say two plus two exclusively equals four, we're actually saying that this is a teaching tool to help our students understand the difference between truth and error. See, exclusive can be a positive word, it can be a negative word, and it all depends on the context. So here's what Christians claim about the Bible. We claim that these 66 books are exclusively the Word of God. Now, there's, a, there's an old word that's used to explain that. It's the word canon. It means a measuring rod, and it means that we actually say that these 66 books are the measure of what God has to say. 
And anything that doesn't measure up to these 66 does not make it as God's holy word. So we're saying something very exclusive about these books. But again, we're left to ask a question. Why these 66? Why don't we include others? Here's some of the reasons for that. There are great many writings in the world in which uh, there's an internal contradiction. A writer will say one thing and then he'll turn around and say the exact opposite. Well, we might have thought of that in terms of the politicians that we've heard. We've heard a politician on one occasion say one thing and then contradict himself or herself the next moment. And we begin to ask ourselves, at which point in time do we actually believe this politician? Well, it's got to be that way if we're gonna ask ourselves, how do we know whether God has spoken? How do we know whether or not there's an authoritative word in which the God who does not lie gives us his word regarding something, and then in the end simply says, that's how it will be for all times. So if, for instance, something God added to the Bible, let's say a 67th book and then a 68th and a, and a 69th, and in the 67th book we found an internal contradiction between that and which had been said 66 books before, well, we might say, I don't get it. I mean, how do I know whether or not God has spoken? So from that, I wanna give you a justification to why these 66 and not others. And I'll begin by reading from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to four. It says, long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, that is the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, the passage that we've just read says there's something about Jesus that puts him head and shoulders above everybody else. Indeed, we judge all other people who have ever come before Jesus and after Jesus by Jesus himself. And what we find in this passage, and whether you agree with it or not, you still need to hear it. The Bible says something about Jesus that we need to pay attention to because if the Bible is saying the truth about him, then indeed he becomes the exclusive reference for all other claims. And if not, we ought to reject everything that the Bible says. So I wanna say more about what is it about Jesus that makes him unique, and then from that to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus is unique, then why is it that there are only 66 books in the Bible? Why these 66 and no more? So please pay attention because I think what I'm about to say will help you to understand what it is that Christians are saying about the Bible, what they're not saying, and why we view the Bible in a, in a lens in which we view no other book. Uh, the beginning verses of the book of Hebrews give us a unique picture of Jesus and claim that Jesus is superior to all other people and all other things. Now, you may or you may not agree with what this text is saying, but at the very least, a person owes themselves 
the opportunity to hear what the Bible says about Jesus and then begin to judge the truth claims that are there. Listen to verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. And in fact, it'll tell us five things about Jesus. Here's, here's the first of them. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And that word radiance means the shining forth of something. And, uh, you know, when you look at the sun, you see light itself. But when you look at the moon, you see the reflection of the light. So when you look at Jesus, says the writer of Hebrews, you're not looking at the moon or the reflection of the glory of God. You're actually looking at the radiance itself. He is the radiance of God. That's the first claim that's being made. The second one says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, now that word for imprint comes from a Greek word which had everything in the world to do with a stamp by which you made an imprint on a coin. So if you got one of those ancient Roman coins, you'd see an imprint of the likeness of Caesar on it. So the, the analogy is this, even as the imprint on the coin directly corresponds to the tool that is made to stamp it, so also when you look at God and Jesus, that the imprint of both of them directly correspond to each other. There is no difference between the nature of God the Father and the nature of Jesus himself. That, that's the point. So that's the second thing. He's, he's not only the radiance of God's glory, he's the exact imprint of his nature of, or of his character. Thirdly, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, the writer of Hebrews says that the universe that exists, exists because of Jesus. If Jesus for a moment takes his hand away from the universe, the universe would cease to exist. Now, I don't know of any other religious prophet in the world that would have made such a claim about himself. I mean, all sorts of prophets have come and gone and they have claimed to speak for God. But this one, Jesus claimed that he is the reason the earth exists, and he is also the reason that it continues to exist. Now, that's an astronomical claim. So we've had three things. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, notice the fourth thing. After making purification for sins. See, this is really the heart of the Christian message. Jesus Christ, who was fully God from all of eternity, the, the radiance of God shining forth, came in human form, and as a human being, bled and died on a cross, and by that one act, has forever purified everyone who hopes in him. In other words, what do we do about our infractions against God's holy law? You know, if God's completely righteous, and every one of us are sinners, how do we approach God? And the passage says that Jesus alone purifies sin. He takes them away, you know. And uh, because of what he has done, all of our sins can be removed so that we can enter into God's presence and be completely holy because of what he's done. I, again, don't know of any other prophet who's made that claim that his death takes away all sins. So here's what the text says. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having finished his work, 
The Son is seated in the position of power at the right hand of God. Now, in the ancient world, the right hand of power, well, the right hand, most people being right-handed, the right hand was always the hand that you held your sword. It was the hand of vengeance, and it was also the hand of justice. It was the hand of warfare. It was the hand of supremacy. It was the hand of power. So here's what the text says. Jesus, having completed his perfect work in forgiving our sins, now sits exalted at the place of power. There is no greater power in heaven or on earth than Jesus himself. I wanna put all of this together. See, we've been asking the question of why these 66 books and no more. And the writer of Hebrews has been saying, God has spoken in the past and prophets have come and prophets have gone and they've told us about God. But in these late last days, something unique and startling has happened. One has come forward not to be a prophet, but the one who has come forward is in fact God walking among us. And here's the issue. If God walked among us and spoke to us, it's hard to imagine how any greater word can be spoken than God himself speaking in human form. And that's the point. What we have as the New Testament is actually the sayings of Jesus and the implications of his saying. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is the apex. There's nothing greater that can be said. So if after all of this stuff has been written, that we say, well, you know, after that, another prophet comes and what they says actually supersedes the Bible or is a greater revelation. We have to say, oh, wait a minute. Are you saying to us that somebody greater than Jesus has arrived? And in some cases, that's exactly what they're saying. So here's the question that we're left with. Either a prophet is greater than Jesus or that prophet is not greater than Jesus. It can't be both. And so if another prophet is greater than Jesus, well, then in that case, well, the Bible is just not true, but if Jesus is in fact who he said he is, then what we have in our Bible is the last and final and greatest word of God because this is God's word entering into the human race, clothed in human form, speaking to us. It is a final word, it is an authoritative word, and after it's been spoken, we just you know, put our hands over our mouths and say, I guess nothing else can be said. That's the nature of the Bible. It's making the most outrageous claims you've ever heard. It's claiming this is the final and ultimate word. And once this word has been spoken, it's just an exclusive word. I mean, what can you add to that? I don't know if you're aware of it or not, so let me make you aware of it. Jesus himself wrote not one single word in our Bible. I know some of you have something called a red letter Bible, but the words of Jesus are in red. But those words that are in red were actually written by someone else. Jesus never picked up a pen to write any words of the Bible. The words that we have in the Bible are written about Jesus by other people. And that should be said. So here's the question. Who are the people that wrote about Jesus? And if you've been watching this series, you'll know that I've said that these were eyewitnesses of Jesus. That is to say, Jesus selected 12 men and he called them his apostles. An apostle is a messenger. 
So if you can imagine in the ancient world, there's a king and he gives a message and he has a page that writes it down and then he sends that page to someone else and he delivers that message on behalf of the king. In essence, that's who the apostles are. Jesus deliberately appointed them as his messengers of the world. So here's the question. What do these messengers actually do? Well, in the Bible, we are told that there were 12 of them. We also know that one of them by the name of Judas betrayed him and that he is replaced in the end of the day. But how, what else do we know? Well, let me read to you a couple of passages from the Bible in which those messengers speak about themselves. I'm reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, and this is speaking to believers in Jesus, and here's what the text says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Well, hold that thought in mind because I'm going to read one more text, and then I'll put these thoughts together. Here I'm reading 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, and here Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I don't know how many of you are in the, in the building trade, but you do know that the most important thing about a house before you put up the walls is that you lay down the foundation. I mean, if that foundation is not laid down well, no matter what you build after it, it's simply of no account. The second thing you know about a foundation is that you only lay it once. I mean, you don't you know, lay a foundation, begin to build, and then put another foundation on top of it. It's not a foundation. A foundation is that upon which everything else is built. Now, here's what the text says. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You know, in the ancient world, a cornerstone is that one stone that would mark how every other foundation stone would be laid. It would, it would set the direction for it. But then the text also says that the apostles are the ones that built on that cornerstone. They laid the foundation. In other words, to put it in very practical language, Jesus appointed 12 people to actually lay down the basis for the Christian faith and the basis for the gospel, the basis for God's spoken word. He directly appointed them. So he who is beyond or above all other things, who is himself God, put 12 men aside, and he said to these 12, you guys will lay down the foundation for everything that I have said. Now, when we read through the Bible, we not only read through what these apostles or chosen men that Christ appointed said, but we have something else. And here I'm reading Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus told the apostles was quite frankly different from everything else that anyone had ever received because these are the actual words of Jesus. Those people whom Christ appointed to write the New Testament were those men, and hear this, those men who were given exclusive rights to report on not only what Jesus said, but the implications of what he said. They set the stage for the highest point of revelation of all time. So what is it that we have in our Bible? Well, the first 39 books are the books that we call the Old Testament. 
and they tell the story of expectation. There is this yearning in the first 39 books that one day the promised Messiah would come. One day God would visit his people. And so there is this ascending line of expectation. You're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. That's what the writer of Hebrews says that, you know, long ago God has spoken in the past through many prophets and many times, various ways. But in these last days, we reach the pinnacle of all that God says. And so the last 27 books are written by the eyewitnesses of Jesus who tell us what Jesus said and what his sayings actually mean. So we come to the end of the eyewitness account and the 66 books have come to an end. And in effect, the book has reached its zenith, its completion, it's there, it's all done. Now it is possible for someone to come along after the 66 books are written and to say, you know what, I've got another book and it's as good as this one. But if it is, you have to explain how the author and the founder of that book somehow is equal to Jesus or supersedes Jesus. You can see the issue. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and if he is, then these 66 books are exclusively the word of God. But if on the other hand, Jesus is a liar and a fraud, then it's not the case. You see, everything comes down to an estimation of Jesus, but once we come to understand that Jesus is the only one who has risen from the dead, he's the only one who is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, he is the only one who is able to do the kind of miracles that he did to raise the dead and to walk on water and everything else, he simply stands in a category unlike anyone else. That's the reason why Christians say these 66 books are no more. To say it's exclusive is the most freeing thing in the world because it tells us that God has finally and ultimately spoken and his word can be trusted. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, thanks for your message today. A couple of questions come to mind. I guess, why is this important uh, to talk to in respect to the world and how the world perceives the Word of God? Well, we're living in a culture in which there is a pluralism of thought, pluralism of religion, uh, cultural backgrounds, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for Christians to begin to intelligently explain why it is we believe what we do and also do it lovingly, right? Because we're... We don't want to be hateful. We want to be gentle, gracious, and yet very firm uh, in terms of why it is that we believe what we do. Now, the truth of the matter is most people that will hear your message today yep. will be Christians. Yes. And so there must be some significance as to, to why we're trying to teach the church this as well. Yeah, I think the church tends to lose its way in terms of what we actually have in the Bible. I mean, historically, we've said things like the Bible is sufficient. And why by that we mean what it says is all that we actually need in terms of life and truth. It's that uniqueness, Ben, I think mm -hmm. about the Bible uh, that we need to reemphasize for God's people. So the importance of today is, is not only for non-Christians, but is for Christians alike. And, and it's a message that really, we really need to put at the foundation of what we believe to be true about God. Because if we don't believe this, what do we believe? Well, that's it. I mean, again, I mean, we've mentioned in the past, some people will prefer their own private revelation over the text of Scripture. And other people will say, well, I've heard it said somewhere or I've read somewhere and they prefer what they've heard over the text of Scripture. And we need to arm God's people and give them justification for saying, no, no, it's this text that stands supreme 
over everything that you've received. I see, I think that's important. One last thing, really quickly, because I hear this a lot lately, uh, of people that are red letter believers. Uh-huh. In essence, you've mentioned it, yeah. uh, the, the, the words that were written down that Jesus would have spoke in red are more important than anything else. Yeah, I mean, the silliness of that is that the words in red were not written by Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And the same people that wrote the words that Jesus read also wrote other words as well. And so I, I think we wanna say, look, Christ deliberately entrusted his words to the apostles. That's what we have in our New Testament. So if you hold the red letters, you gotta hold it all. That's just the way it goes. Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. And, And remember to join us again next week right here on Truth and Life Today.